if I found out this deep into doing this show that you were like not free Britney, <laughs> I think we would just have to stop recording. It'd be like, and thus concludes the bad Christian books experiment. Yeah, worse than Harris. You are worse than purity culture because you're anti-Britney. Don't take that out of context. Yeah, I'm going to start the <laughs> podcast with that, with that quote. I remember the day that I went into my local Christian bookstore and there was my book. You are not God! You are just a man! The Total Money Makeover book, which is sold almost to The number one copies. best-selling book. 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 No, because it's not a great book. Story. Read book. <laughs> this is Bad Christian Books. Welcome to Bad Christian Books. A Christian bookstore dumpster dive, where we investigate bestsellers and pop trends in the evangelical community. I'm one of your two hosts, Samuel Culiato, and I'm joined by Mary Hall. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here talking to my, my friend Samuel about um, some books that, frankly, have been quite triggering in, our, uh, in my teen years. <laughs> Bringing up trauma I haven't thought about for 15 years, but I guess that's kind of the point, right? Triggering is a good way to put it. I've been doing a lot of, um, I call it trauma spelunking, where you're just digging through um, some bad memories, but with the benefit of hindsight. And tonight's episode is about I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which has brought a lot of hindsight memories to the forefront. Uh, what do you remember, Mary, about I Kissed Dating Goodbye in one sentence? I read the book as a 15-year-old and prayed and told God that I would you know, stay pure. And then like six months later, started dating my high school boyfriend. So do with that what you will. Not to insinuate I wasn't pure in my high school relationship. (laughs) Or that I wasn't. I don't know. Maybe tonight I'll find out. But that's my memory of the book. (laughs) This this kind of sounds like Schrodinger's purity, uh, which I think we all kind of have. Now I'm like blushing. I'm like, ooh, was I pure? Was I not pure? What was the right answer for that? (laughs) I think you're perfectly describing the experience of reading I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, so I'd never read it until um, until my 30s, i.e. a few weeks ago. And um, I, it had been often used to kind of, um, I guess, I, I've, I've, the, the popular phrase is used as a weapon. Um, I So I dated somebody in high school, um, and then I realized halfway through that I wasn't actually dating them. I was courting them. Um, their family regularly cited this book as their reason for that philosophy. Um, having said that, they are both an ex and they do not have any piece of my heart. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is the main thing I think people remember about this book. Um, this, the book starts out with a uh, dream sequence in which a, a woman is at the altar and uh, every, she sees every single ex that her groom-to-be has ever dated and each of them has just a little piece of his heart oh i remember this right i also think that's like maybe the only part most people actually i think most people read that and were like okay i think i've got it and they weren't wrong but that's the only part i ever hear people reference from this book well i mean as like a young child i mean 14 15 somewhere in there i mean a baby mentally it's a very evocative like image especially if you're like a sheltered christian little baby who probably hasn't had a lot of experience you're like oh no if i like bat my eyes at the boy in 
biology class am I gonna ruin my future happiness forever that's I mean I think that's kind of like the fear people brought into it right yeah I think that fear and we'll, we'll talk about that fear I think that made it a very popular book and I, I do think it is kind of fear primarily that drove this book's popularity um so for those of you who don't know, although I have a feeling that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably listening to hear us talk about <laughs> I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, this book came out in 1997. It was it had a second edition published in 2003, which is the one that I used. Between 1997 and 2001, it sold almost a million copies per Christianity Today. At this point, it has sold far more. Oh my word, a million copies? A million copies. In like what? What? How, like six years? Five years? What? It? What was the dates you said? Uh, between ninety-seven and oh one. So yeah, like about four years. Oh, so in four years, in five years, wow. definitely a million. Um, this became nationally popular, obviously by Josh Harris, the writer's own admission. Christianity is sort of niche famous, but within that niche, Harris became very famous. Um, he was sort of seen as an evangelical wonder kid. Um, but the those of you who may know, around 2019, he announced that he requested the book to be discontinued. And in fact, shortly thereafter, he announced that he no longer identified as a Christian. Um, in addition to him and his wife were also separating, which I think these three aspects show not only, they not only call into question the advice that he's giving, but shows that he himself no longer felt the advice he was giving was good advice but is it that is mm. it that simple mary well we're gonna we're gonna dig deeper take me on the journey samuel i'm ready harris and i actually have a little bit in common we're both from ohio um i don't think i mentioned this i live in california now um i'm a west coast boy but i i come from the midwest and uh my you know ohio is for lovers the heartland and uh yeah so harris is from dayton ohio he's born there in 1974 he's the oldest of seven children um, although he, similar to me, went out to the West Coast, albeit earlier, he grew up in Oregon. Um, in a June 11th, 2001 interview with Christianity Today, Harris talks about how he was working on a homeschool magazine because his parents were major players in the homeschool movement. Um, and so he was working on a homeschool magazine called New Attitude. Uh, dating was a major topic and inspiration for his writings, which built up to the publication of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Another Christianity Today article says that Harris was a youth leader in a seeker-sensitive church. Eventually, he met the pastor C.J. Mahaney, who is pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, so a lot of things happened for Harris all at once. He published I Kissed Dating Goodbye through Multnomah Publishing in 1997. And then at the same time, he moved to Gaithersburg, Maryland, and he became C.J. Mahaney's pastoral intern at Covenant Life Church. Um, so Mahaney was basically grooming Harris to take his place as pastor of Covenant Life. And, uh, we'll probably be covering, I, I could see us potentially covering Mahaney in a potential podcast and a later podcast because Covenant Life is a story unto itself. Um, but and, like Josh Harris was like, sorry to interrupt. Josh Harris oh, was good. like young at this point, mm. right? Like he was a baby. He was 20. Yeah. I mean, I mean, thinking about it, he was like five years older than me. I mean, that's kind of like when I was reading his book. Um, You're saying he's older than 14? He's older than 14, but <laughs> but younger than I think he should be to write a best-selling book on how to like prepare yourself for marriage. Oh, I, I fully agree. I mean, 
I wasn't married yet when I, I like I got married young and I didn't get married at 20. So, and he wasn't married at 20 yet either. So he's giving this advice on a life he hasn't lived yet. So between 1997 and 2013, he published six books through Multnomah, four of which are about purity or dating. Oh my um, word, that's so many books. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of books. I've... As someone who has a quota of three stories a week, that still stresses me out. Yeah, it's like I've self-published four books, and I, similar to Harris, I unpublished my first book. <laughs> but it's it's a lot, and I feel like... Uh, that's quite the quotient of dating-related books, especially. Harris became pastor of Covenant Life Church in 2006. You recall, I shared that he was youth pastor and then pastoral intern. Um, did I mention seminary at any point in that equation? You did not. Do you know, I mean, we're pretending like we haven't discussed about this before. <laughs> Do you remember the year that Harris finally did seminary? I don't remember it, but I remember it was when he left his church, right? When he was, after he was the lead pastor, decided he was like, I feel weird about my life, and decided to go back to seminary or something, right? Absolutely. Harris Harris did feel weird about his life. Uh, in an interview with uh, Mike Cosper of Christianity Today for the um, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, um, Harris cites his inexperience as a pastor and the way it affected his leadership when handling allegations of abuse within Covenant Life Church. Um, this was one of his big reasons for resigning as a pastor in 2015 and then going to seminary, which is the first time Harris not only went to seminary, but saw the inside of any classroom. Um, now, I'm a former homeschooler. I homeschooled from second grade to sixth grade, so I'm not going to I'm not going to bash homeschooling per se, but at the same time, it is wild to me how little education this guy has publishing such a widely circulated book and going on to pastor a church. I'm sure everybody has different feelings as to like how educated uh, pastors should be and even the kind of strange way that we marry education and religion in evangelicalism. But uh, the guy had basically no real formal training well yeah because i mean my and this is i it's been a while since i've like looked into this guy at all but i mean my understanding is like even as like a homeschooler he was even within homeschooling world he was pretty sheltered right like he a lot of homeschool kids like are a part of larger classes or go on trips or i don't know what your homeschooling was like but you know what i mean like there's there's there is a spectrum of homeschooling and i always got the feeling he was a little bit more on the like doing it himself side at the very least i know that uh he had a gymnastics team because that comes up in the book um which i assume was Ooh. I, you know i didn't look i didn't i this is my this is the edge of my journalistic expertise i didn't look into what the affiliations of Josh i was Harris's gonna say i got i got team. the journalist in me instantly was like okay could we find pictures of this gymnastics team and then was like i hope samuel really found pictures of gymnastics and then i was like samuel didn't find pictures of him doing gymnastics there's no way <laughs> i i will i will come clean mary if you go in my google image search history there are zero queries for josh <sighs> harris gymnastics <laughs> man next yeah. investigation Where next are the investigation <laughs> I see. I I'm, I've got such big shoes to fill here because we're this is my first podcast where I'm I'm covering the book and and we've got Mary 
who's an award-winning journalist. So I'm like, oh gosh, constantly, I'm 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 dotting my eyes, crossing my t's here. I roll. <laughs> <laughs> this is your your first podcast, but not your first radio show. So that's very true. Uh, yeah, just sit little uh, Easter eggs in there for people trying to figure out where we come from. Well, yeah, not it's not even the first radio show that you and I have hosted together. That's right, but no one should look that up because it was when we were very young and basically goofied off. Oh, I can't even imagine what kind of things we were saying on this proverbial show. Um, I think I I would always just scroll weird news on Reddit and uh, just talk oh. about that. A hundred percent. My mom told me, I was talking to her earlier tonight, and she was like, I listened to you guys once, but it was, like, really hard to find your show. And then she was like, you guys had good rapport. And I was like, yeah, I guarantee you had no desire to listen to that show because it was, like, whatever we felt like in the moment. (laughs) There's no research behind it. This one will be more researched. People are going to see growth. Sure. So, yeah, uh, speaking of of learning of research so harris he goes to seminary he goes to um regent college in vancouver and so he eventually does a documentary about the experience of writing and then kind of falling out of favor with i kissed dating goodbye called i survived i kissed dating goodbye so according to him in that documentary his time with his classmates got him realizing that his books had adversely affected people um i think in the past maybe people had had criticisms but he could kind of write them off as haters whereas when it's your friends and people who care about you then it's a little harder to ignore um eventually uh on twitter a woman tagged him and said hey you your book was used against me as a weapon and he said i'm sorry which as we know i'm sorry can be very loaded and it got people talking again about it um i think the buzz about him apologizing for the book kind of made him think there was more interest than there was um he began to publicly express remorse uh for the book's societal effect in 2016 and then in 2017 he did a tedx talk where he was promoting the upcoming uh documentary about him re-examining the book um, this is kind of when we get into the kind of person Josh Harris is, though, because I've told you a lot about what he does, but who he is, Josh Harris is a business guy. He has always been a business guy. Even reading the book where I'm like, I don't think you understand much about relationships, sex, or dating, it seemed like he understood a little bit about business. Um, he's His apology tour very much has the feeling of, or at the very least was criticized for being an attempt to monetize his apology. Right, yeah. That was my memory of it. He, he wanted to do a seminar about deconstruction that was, I'm trying to look through my notes here. It was going to be like $200 to like join the seminar. But on the honor system, you could enter a code if you had been harmed by his book and get it for free. Um, the backlash against that seminar was so great that he immediately canceled it. And in fact, it kind of caused the documentary to get... The documentary is out there. You can watch it on YouTube for free, but it was never officially distributed. That's basically where his story ends until uh, 2019. He announced that he and his wife were separating via Instagram. Why is it always Instagram? Sorry. It's always Instagram. <laughs> you know... If you're going to choose Twitter or Instagram, you got more words to work with. Maybe that's a millennial 
uh, thing is to announce a divorce. Like, a celebrity millennials announce their divorces by Instagram where, I don't know. Do you think Gen Z will do it on a Discord server? Oh, God. I hope not. I Discord, I know people are on it. I'm not trying to sound like an old person here. But as someone who has written a lot about mental health and um, specifically uh, suicide in the past, like, three weeks, I've spent a lot of time writing some stories about those topics. Discord is a really dark place slash can become one very quickly. I love Gen Z. (laughs) I want Gen Z to know right now I love them. I'm sorry. I'm feeling very, like, Biden-ish right now. So here, please continue with Harris. Ignore my uh, my, my exhausted rants about Gen Z. God, all I want to do is follow up with you on whatever you mean by I feel Biden-ish. But uh, well, I just, won't. I feel like an old boomer man. But anyway, continue, please. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> you're like I'm reaching across the aisle so much, it almost seems like I'm just a Republican. Um <laughs> Okay, okay, that's in that same month of 2019, Josh Harris announced via Instagram again that he was no longer a Christian, saying, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. I don't know that that's true. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. In the grand scheme of, like, Josh Harris grifter moments, this one actually did not really sign off, send off a lot of red flags for me. I felt like it's about as authentic as we're going to see him get. Um, I will say the comments on that were very disturbing. Um, it was people that were just like, Christians, if you're listening, be kind to people, even if they are no longer part of your club. I, I think I've always had, like, some compassion for him just because, you know, like we said earlier, like, he did write this book. Like, if it published when he was 20, that means he was probably writing it at, what, like, 18, 19, somewhere in that range. Like, such a baby. No one needs to read what I wrote at 19. Please, no one look it up. I'm sure it exists on the internet somewhere. But, like, to have this much power and influence when you're, like, 20, that's very destructive and i think you know for like kind of this like wonderkind type character that he like became where he was like fast-tracked through a church and you know all those things like you know in some ways i felt like he became as much like a monster of the like christian publishing world as like he was within himself but then i saw like after he published this like thing then he, like, tried to make a business for people who, like, had PR issue, PR, like, relations issues within the church. And I was like, uh, maybe that's not what you're supposed to do. I don't know. It just felt like he, he couldn't, he st- even when he was like, I need to separate myself from this because, like, this thing that I don't believe anymore is obviously, like, toxic and harmful to people. And yet he couldn't, like, he couldn't separate himself enough from it to, like actually separate himself from it so he just kind of kept profiting off it if you saw me if we were like on video you would see i'm waving my arms frantically trying to express words here 
Well, if you ever don't want to feel compassion for him, uh, watch the documentary and listen to his Ooh, Haven't done that one. Maybe don't need to. It seems like he has absolutely no clue as to why people dis- dislike his book so much. <laughs> and just a quick roundup on this kind of apology tour he did. The, the TED Talk isn't really about purity culture or even interrogating purity culture. It's about... Is in a way, aren't I a stronger man for being able to say I was wrong? Which kind of almost feels like he's saying he's not wrong. <laughs> um, the documentary is this very shallow attempt, I think, at trying to reach out to people who were harmed by the book. I think he's vastly underestimating just how many people were harmed by it. Um, so it just feels a little too little too late. It also has this problem where there's nobody that they're interviewing where he himself is not present. Mm. But I, I think you're right. You, you made a good point when you're talking about being a monster. Um, I think he felt a little bit of that monster-ishness. I saw an interview, most recent bit of Harris Media besides this podcast that I engaged with was an interview on Axios where he was basically talking about how he excommunicated people as a pastor for being gay for divorcing for premarital sex and so he decided to excommunicate himself did he use the term excommunicate he did which is just another one of many things that baffle me as to what does this guy think evangelical christian theology is (laughs) That's just such a loaded word. Oh, my. Yeah, I haven't heard the term excommunicate since I was, like, studying, like, the papacy in 1400s Rome. And I feel like you told me this story years ago, and I just don't remember the details. But, like, how do you enter a courtship without realizing you're in a courtship? I think it's the same reason Harris's wife married him, actually. Um, Because... In the documentary, even, she's just like, okay, he was telling me all this stuff about dating and courtship, and I thought, well, I like this guy, we'll just go along with it. And I think that's what happens is, it really takes two to tango for full courtship to happen, and at no point did I really buy into it. So you courted someone knowing that it wasn't going to work out, which is like... Which is dating. (laughs) Well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that's the opposite of the book, but maybe that's why you've just you've proven the thesis of the book. It's like, you know, w- we didn't kiss. I was I was cool with that. I was just like, hey, you seem interesting. Let's get to know each other. And then, then we did. And I was like, all right. Thank you. Next. Wow. So harsh. I mean, that, that's an Ariana Grande moment. You were before your time. Just need a ponytail. But yeah, it was that was kind of the thing for me as I was just like. And I think this is actually a central issue with a lot of how these pop culture trends are handled within Christianity is we treat it like an extension of the Bible where we're like, it says this, so we have to do this. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't agree to that. You know, it's like, if you don't want to kiss, I'm not going to kiss, you know, like, I'm fine with that. I respect your physical boundaries, but you can't just say we're courting, i.e. we're just going to get married one day. I'm, I was, how old was I? I was 16. So, like, it was the year The Dark Knight came out, I remember. Ooh, that was (laughs) a year. Mm -hmm. That was a year. That was a year and a half. But yeah, so that's kind of, that's how you, that's how you court somebody without courting them. Uh, You you simply stop returning their texts. (laughs) I I fear that I was a ghoster. Enough about me and my, and my dysfunctional, my defective dating habits, as Harris would call them. Let's talk about the book. Let's uh, let's talk a little structure. Uh, the book is divided into four parts with four chapters each. 
he's making really a handful of points that he spreads over 200 pages. Um, so the book's in four sections. Section one is basically saying modern dating is bad. It's harmful. Number two is saying you can't know the love of Jesus without sexual purity. I should add, these are in my words, not his, because his words are not efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Number three is here's some tips on how to remove sex from relationships. Uh, I should say premarital relationships, though he does not really speak to sex within marriage at all, because how could he? He has not been married. Um, and then number four is just kind of potpourri. It's, he talks a little bit about courtship near the end of the book. He has a whole section that's just him quoting poetry that he likes. And then uh, his hopes for the future. I think most people just read the first chapter and then skimmed the rest. Um, every, like I said, everybody's recollections about the book are about the exes at the altar. And then they'll be like, they'll mention courtship. But here's the thing. Courtship isn't even name checked until page 188. It's like a 200 something page book. It's more of a more of an afterthought. Um, so in this podcast, we're gonna oftentimes do our best to like debunk claims that are made. I know Mary, you're in the process of reading a book that makes a lot of really specific financial claims that you're kind of looking through. Are these actually uh, peer reviewed? Are these actually correct? Um, Harris does not make claims that are so easily verified or not verified because they're just anecdotes his his basis for everything is anecdotes he'll quote books but in more of a like lit paper sort of way where he'll be like modern modern dating is bad love is patient love is kind it's like these two things don't really you know i i think he tries to make the argument that corinthians was written for a similar dating culture to uh ours but um we nobody well Plenty of people do worship Aphrodite, but they're, it, Aphrodite is not nearly so mainstream as a of a of an institution <laughs> as uh, she was in Corinth. Yeah, I'm like squinting my eyes trying to figure out like how you make. I mean, I guess I see it. Aphrodite often had very little clothes. So did Britney Spears at the height of her fame. Free Britney. I'm pro Britney. Just just establishing pro Britney. But she wore a lot of crop tops at a time when crop tops were frowned upon. So most claims are justified through unverifiable anecdotes. I thought this was interesting. Josh's foremost source, which was Elizabeth Elliot, specifically the book Passion and Purity, which is the book besides the Bible that he references the most. Which uh, is like astounding to me. As someone who grew up in Ecuador... The Elliots were, like, very big there in the mission community. They were missionaries who came, tried to reach this group of indigenous people that were, like, very anti-Western world. And I don't know. I think whatever you think about that, which I have feelings about that we can talk about another time, Elizabeth Elliot was, like, a really remarkable person. I mean, in the 50s, when, like, women did not just go do things by themselves— she ended up going back into the, um, like, people that killed her husband and, like, a group of her friends and then spent the rest of her life living among them, helped bring, um, like, medical care there, helped negotiate against, like, um, Shell Oil was coming in and probably just, like, going to, like, wipe out the um, people that were there. I mean, it's just, like, she's a very interesting character. And so when you were, like... 
Josh Harris loves Elizabeth Elliot. I was like, well, that's a weird cameo that I wasn't expecting. A part of the evangelical influencer cinematic universe. And I think at the same time, he's kind of, there's a very kind of boyish naivete with which he's evoking a lot of these titans, shall we say. I do think there is something, culturally, Christianity makes heroes out of humans by kind of like simplifying their accomplishments and that maybe that's kind of how like it was for josh harris when he was like a teen because it was like oh wow this teenager has such insight into teen culture today i mean elizabeth elliott is another one where like i mean i met so many people who were like i wanted to come to ecuador because like of the elliots it's like do you know anything about like what they did or like what they did after and they're like no it was just such this inspiring story and you know i do think like maybe that's something we'll encounter in other books but that is something that I've had to reckon with, too, of, like, being taught, like, these very simple stories about people that are extremely complex. And Christianity doesn't make us more simple. If anything, it makes us more complex because we're trying to live up to our morality. Well, I, I think you really put the nail on the head, though, because even in I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Harris muses that the simplicity of what he's suggesting in his book is what the appeal of it was. It was taking the complexities of dating and simplifying it. I think, too, it's also a way, which um, is funny because the book regularly contradicts itself. There's actually a strange web of, of that, but... I think sometimes heavy contradiction does get filtered by the reader into a rather simple point. Well, and I mean, when you're like 16 and like, I feel all this anxiety about talking to the girl or guy or whatever that you want. I mean, maybe there is like a comfort in being like, well, it's all bad. And the discomfort I feel is not me learning to become an adult. It's just... The sinful world. And so it's more simple if I just like push this off until I'm 20, which hate to break it to all the young kiddos out there. It does not get simpler when you're 20. It gets worse. I think it validates people's fears. And I think sure. that's a huge appeal of a lot of popular media, both secular and Christian so-called, is people want to feel like they're not being ignorant that their fears are justified. But we'll get into that more. Um, I, I think another huge mistake that Christianity makes in simplifying its stories is the simpler the story, the more we can say this person was perfect. Um, mm. If you're a Christian, I, I feel like if you're not a Christian, you should not believe that anybody's perfect. If you're a Christian, you most likely believe that Jesus was perfect and that he was the only perfect person. Um, so... It's interesting to me how we regularly try to make these non-Jesus characters who are perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, but I mean, I grew up in a church that regularly said, like, not to get too christian is here for anyone who's not, but, like, I was regularly, like, told if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, like, a.k.a. you are living a Christian life, you know, in the way that you're supposed to, you will become perfect. You yeah. will become free from sin and you will no longer struggle with sin. Um, that, I mean, that was like literally said to me every Thursday night of every church camp because Thursday night was always the Holy Spirit night. Yeah. And I mean, that that was definitely 
you and I were sort of raised in a very unique kind of theology too, which was the holiness theology, which, um, so we come from the Nazarene church, which believes that eventually the Holy Spirit will perfect you through a process called sanctification. Um, Samuel, you just gave away all the things. I gave, well, I mean, there's a few Nazarene colleges out there. Maybe we went to Point Loma. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's what's interesting, though, is that is not Harris's theology. Mm-hmm. Harris comes from Reformed theology, which basically believes that people sin every day in word, thought, and deed until they ask for the final mulligan on their deathbed. That's me whittling it down extremely reductionistically. But it is it comes from that Calvin. It's, Cal, it's called Calvinism, which is it's interesting because I find that Calvinists often push for this idea of a patriarchal perfect person despite the fact that their theology does not support anybody Mm. being perfect in that way um so yeah that's a very that is quite the intro to this book so this book makes a lot of points every chapter is literally a, a list of bullet points so what i tried to do was distill his talking points into seven points and they are as follows One, all physical attraction is a distraction from God's purpose. Two, the purpose of life is productivity. Three, singleness is a gift from God. Four, the casual nature of modern dating often puts people in morally compromising positions. This is me wording that in the most generous way possible. Um, Five, all authority is an extension of God's authority. Six, marriage is ownership. (laughs) And seven, we should all be policing our peers' purity, which I might add is at odds with points he's making in points two and three. Wow. I I, th- I predict feelings in the future. I do too. I, I think we've got some feelings ahead of us. Let's do a breakdown of these points. Point one, all physical attraction is a distraction from God's purpose. I really got the sense that this was why he thought dating was bad, that it was st- because he doesn't he tells a lot of he says a lot of it's bad and he says a lot of why but he doesn't really he doesn't come out and say it which is sort of an issue with a lot of this book there's for being something that's trying to package dating anxieties into a simple wrap it up with a simple bow he does not use particularly efficient wording um so the primary focus of chapter one besides the altar dream is josh's struggles with using women for pleasure Um, It feels like Josh is this close to learning an important lesson about the equality of women and how objectification is morally wrong. Um, But he pivots into making it a reason to other women and make his feelings about them their fault. Um, This is one of the book's big failings. Uh, Consistently, the beauty of a woman's body is made to be a thing that only exists in Josh's gaze, not something that belongs to her. Um, for instance, he says, physical interaction encourages us to start something we're not supposed to finish, which almost makes me want to ask, like, so, Josh, do you kiss your mom? <laughs> <laughs> like, do, do you feel like that's starting something <laughs> that has only one logical endpoint? <laughs> but yeah, it's like that. I mean, that that's such a fishy sentence to me is it's like it's we're starting something we're not supposed to finish and that's like so every kiss needs to end in like full penetration do you understand what you're saying it's interesting you say that though because 
like as an adult I'm reading that differently but I think as a kid that was like actually a very compelling argument I yeah I just think it's interesting how there's like I guess this is a good example of simple of bringing simplicity where it's just like don't touch it all and you'll never do the bad touch which you know technically true uh, this comes to a head in chapter 14, where he has a test, quote, uh, scare quotes, that is entirely at a woman's expense, framing her body as a problem and a measure of worth. Mary, can you read us our first, ex- first big excerpt from the book? How many times have I made a complete fool of myself by falling head over heels for someone simply because of her charm and beauty? Too many times. To cure this tendency, I've created a little game. When I meet a beautiful girl and I'm tempted to be overly impressed by her external features, I try to imagine what this girl would look like when she is 50 years old. Again, I'm actually remembering this now. If this girl is with her mother, this game doesn't take too much imagination. That last sentence was in parentheses. This girl may be young and pretty now, but what happens when the beauty fades? Does anything within her beckon to me? Is it her character that radiates and draws me towards her? Or is it just the fact that her summer dress shows off a little too much of her tan? So what if her feminine outline captures my eye today? When pregnancies add stretch marks and the years add extra pounds, Will something in this girl's soul continue to attract me? Mm. The feelings are coming, Samuel. I have feelings. (laughs) So, like, this is a thing people said, right? Like, oh, look at her mother. And number one, like, like, he's trying not to objectify women. But what he's literally saying is that, once women pass the age of i don't know 27 like they're no longer beautiful that's the dicaprio rule (sighs) okay that's another conversation but i mean like full disclosure (laughs) since we're here since we're friends like i have stretch marks on my body i've not been pregnant um i have more pounds than i had when i got married you know i mean like my mother has gray hair. I think she's beautiful. And, like, she is beautiful. Like, I'm sorry. The gaze of a 19-year-old doesn't get to dictate charm and beauty. It's this It's this mindset of, I don't want to objectify someone who is, like, legitimately hot. So my answer to that is by defining hotness as one thing that I'm just going to disconnect my brain from. Instead of being, like huh, maybe, like, beauty is something different. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, he doesn't really interrogate what beauty standards are. I've been doing a a lot of reading lately around, like, fat liberation and, like, fat positive things as well. And I don't know, like, this is the kind of thing that, like, I internalized in my head in a very specific way because I was like, well, I like I, I think in my brain, I'm realizing this now. I'm like processing, having therapy with you as we speak. But, like, I think I internalize books like this in a very specific way that was like, I'm a short, dark-headed girl with a big butt. 
And, like, <laughs> in my head, the girl he's describing here is a tall, thin, blonde girl with long legs. Whether that's true or not, that's, like, you know, that, that's, like, what was the pre presented thing. And so it's, like, oh, wow. I do like that your way of, of like, shaming yourself would also be just, like, a great headline for, like, a Tinder profile. <laughs> it's, like, I'm a short, dark-haired girl with a big <laughs> butt. I think people would be, like, oh, okay, allow me to swipe. I would like to. Would you like say, to know more? Moving to, I was going to say, moving to South America during my middle school years gave me a lot more confidence. I've, I'm revealing too much about myself and my own psychosis here. But, like, no, but I, I do think, like, as, as someone who has been a teen girl, you have in your brain an idea of, like, what guys are looking for. And then when you hear a Christian guy write this and he's supposed to be, like, the hero, the message isn't. Decide for yourself what you think is beautiful. Decide for yourself what you think is attractive. Like, like who you are. And, like, that's attractive to people. Um, you know, sometimes, like, physicality is a part of it. Sometimes it's not. Like, I mean, there's, like, a whole range that, like, this kind of book just says, well, no, there's still only one thing that's beautiful, but, like, we're going to lock it up in a box until it's ready to be opened. And that's, that's, that's hard for teens to internalize yeah and i think that's actually a central issue with harris's mode of thought throughout this book um is it, this book is very anti-figure it out for yourself there is a belief in absolute authority that we'll get into later but that authority is a hundred percent external and there is almost no internal means of coming to your own understanding i think this probably reflects how lost josh was honestly when he was writing this book he thinks that these apparently absolute factors of beauty are, distra are distracting us from the purpose of life. So what is the purpose of life? Well, according to Harris, my second point here, he believes the purpose of life is productivity. Uh, he gives us a little bit of insight in chapter 12. He feels like productivity takes the form of service, fiscal responsibility, and parenthood. These are great things. These are noble, but they also aren't going to be what everybody else's life is about. And this is a much more benign way that he makes this mistake, but I think he makes a lot of assumptions about what the average person's life is going to look like. Um, there's not a whole lot to say about the purpose of life as productivity, other than I thought it was interesting that he makes a distinction between producer and consumer. I think this was sort of a popular talking point in the Young Restless Reform Movement, as it's something that Mars Hill pastor Mark Driscoll talks about as well in his sermons. Um, Harris also makes a distinction between entertainment and service, which, you know, is fine. I wish he would have extended that distinction to his own book, which I would argue is more so an entertainment piece than a service piece. I think that was kind of the the conversation that was happening in society at large at that time, right? Like, I mean, For you're sure. talking about late 90s, early 20s, you know, the rise of MTV just around the corner is like the oj trial oj trial you got ask jeeves and i am you know direct messaging coming along facebook's not too long around the corner i mean i think that was like the 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 moral panic of the time was oh no young people are too concerned with entertainment and so they're gonna become bad maybe this is a little too political but they're gonna become bad capitalists and i hope in some sense and form we kind of have um maybe because we realize that productivity doesn't like 
always serve. Make you happy. Uh, <laughs> what we think uh, it should. So Harris literally says in the book, my mom has an intolerance for wasted time. I think God has the same intolerance. That to me isn't so much from the book of Job as it's from the book of capitalism. You know, it's... Literally, it's, God created an entire day to rest. Yeah, I think he's cool with a little time now and then, you know, going to... Idle hands of the devil's work is not a quote from the Bible, just for just so y'all know. <laughs> you know. I mean, when I'm idle, I go to Goodwill and it's great. So yeah, this is like his... Uh, that idea that no time can be wasted, I think kind of brings us into his third point here which is singleness is a gift from god i honestly thought this one was the funny funniest just because he would use the phrase god's gift of singleness and i'm just remembering the way that i was when i was single um i should say i mean obviously it's like you could be single you're, you're single your whole life until you're not but there's a certain point where you're ready to mingle and i remember being ready to mingle and also being single and uh it didn't always feel like a gift from god and I, that's not to say that he's incorrect, but it's just such a funny phrase. It's kind of condescending. Um, so he likes, he first name checks that in chapter three. He says, dating can cause discontentment with God's gift of singleness. Uh, in this segment, Harris, is focus, Harris focuses on the freedom of singleness and how it shouldn't be spent pursuing romance when it could be spent pursuing God. Harris goes on to make this exact same point three more times throughout the book, name-checking this idea even more underneath other points. So I, I like his, some of his quotes here. As a single, and I just, I think it's funny that it says as a single, like, I don't know, a single feels so othery. Uh, as a single, you have the freedom to explore, study, and tackle the world. Harris explicitly says, no other time in your life will offer these chances, which to me is such a diss on marriage. Like, when you're married, you'll never get to explore, study, and tackle the world. Like, I've I've traveled less just due to, like, trying to, like, succeed, to, like, stay, like, be able to pay the rent in L.A. But ever since I've gotten married, I feel like I've life has been so much more of an adventure. And I get to enjoy it with somebody. I would agree. Also, as someone who, like, got married late, a little bit later than you um like a good five four five years later than you and like I'm also a pro of like waiting um if you're like want to too or by the to way I, I like art my my marriage works really well for me and Anna but it's like it's so specific to us and I think that's like when I why I have so much issue with books like this it's like I wouldn't take the experience I had with my life and say like yeah. oh everybody has to live their life this way because i'm a very weird guy <laughs> like i'm a i'm a weird person who like has different needs You're, no i i laugh at that only because i'm like samuel like people who don't know you they're gonna read that and just like into that so much I think Harris is kind of weird, too, and has weird needs as well. Yeah. Well, and the other point I was just going to add very briefly is that, you know, I mean, I actually don't disagree with what he says here because I actually, I, like, subconsciously almost wonder if this is, I, so, okay, slight history into Mary. When I was, like, in this era, I had, like, a very strong mentality that was, like, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to be a journalist. That means I have to be in a city, most likely. Like, most Christian guys want you to, like, f 
follow their careers and I'm not about that. So like when a guy fits with me, then we'll meet. And I almost like wonder if like reading this or some other like singleness weirdness put that thought in my head. But at the same time, I like looking back, I'm like, well, it's very easy for Harris to be like, yeah, being single is great. Like as a man, it's actually really difficult to be in the church as a single person. Um, it's like probably the main reason why I would say as a single woman, it is probably the main reason why like I didn't have a home church for like a good three years, probably after three, four years after I graduated college. And it was because like I felt super weird as like a single woman who wasn't married, wasn't engaged, but also wasn't in college. And like people would be like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? I'm like, no, but like. I'm the editor of a paper and they're like okay cool when are you having babies like you know like I I actually think it's actually really difficult for women in the church to be single yeah I mean I I think you're right I I think too it's it's so interesting to me because the way Harris talks about singleness I think he's specifically thinking about I, I he'll mention he'll he'll mention women but whenever he mentions them I think I have a quote a little bit down the ways but it's always it's never in a professional setting it's mm. always in a there there is this undercurrent of the sort of sexism in the church that often is called complementarianism where it's like he he's trying to speak to both men and women but he clearly doesn't believe that they're capable of the same things well or or even like even if they are capable like it's this expectation that like your life is preparing itself for a man and your future babies like there's that expectation that I don't like I think when you say that to people they're like oh no I don't believe that but like if they examine their thought like they do and I think that's something that I struggle with because I was like I, I mean again I was literally like when a man comes along who's willing to follow my career because I got specific places I want to go we'll talk that happened when I was like 27 so harris makes a lot of assumptions here he says most of us won't remain single for our entire lives which i think is becoming less and less like that that claim is becoming less and less true as people are a kind of removing relationships from the equation entirely especially married relationships and then i think it's just hard for people to meet people as the world becomes more isolated um he obviously didn't know covid was coming when he said that but it's it's very naive like a lot of things that he's written here well and i think also like we live longer like people are becoming single at higher rates later in their life i mean yeah i think there definitely was like uh in this period of time uh uh, i think a holding on i i recognize it now almost as like a holding on to what the church used to be which was like a man and woman white picket fence kind of vibe and then trying to figure out what does it look like years down the road there's like this fear of like all these things that were coming in like fear of feminism and fear of the gays and like i actually think both of those movements have made a lot of people in the church feel like or outside the church like more whole with themselves as they've like grown into that yeah i mean it's allowing it's allowing for more ways of living your life 
Right. Which I think has created a lot of cognitive dissonance for people who need everything to look like, you know, when Eisenhower was still president. (laughs) Yeah. You pointed out the good part of that talking point. Another potentially good talking point, though he doesn't really go anywhere interesting with it, is just that the casualness of modern dating can put people in compromising positions, which is true. I think there's there's an issue of expectations and even when I, you know, the, the kind of stories I hear from modern dating are boundaries. Uh, it's like a, a woman will clearly could be, communicate her boundaries, but a man will assume that she doesn't actually mean it or he'll try to coerce her into compromising those boundaries. Um, I don't ascribe to purity culture. I think it is okay to have sex before marriage, but I think that all sex should be consensual. He doesn't really talk about consent. <laughs> I was going to say, the the argument, like, I mean, I, I definitely think, like, what you just said is, could be true. I also think the answer to it is not, women don't, and I don't think you were saying this, but, like, just, I, you know, the answer I think that I received was, like, well, don't put yourself in those situations, female. And I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is teach everyone what consent means because consent can be about sex but it can also be about like anything i mean it can be about like how do i how what are the things that are important to me being around you and you being around me and how do we like do this thing which is like a relationship in a way that makes both of us like feel good and feel respected um yeah, I, whew, there will be a lot more talked about this, though, in a future podcast because of the book that I am reading that I have a lot of feelings about consent. Does that have to do with a, a battle and uh, a battle, a young and person a, and uh, two genders that they acknowledge that have two, it? <laughs> yes. Well, oh, you don't even know, Samuel. There's, do they get do they get into that? They get spicy. Um, but yes. There's, there's, there are forthcoming episodes about battles that we will spend most of the episode talking about consent, so we don't need to here. I mean, I think the more you can talk about consent, the better, right? True, um, true. That's true. But unfortunately, it's not pertinent to I Kiss Dating Goodbye because he doesn't mention consent once. Um, his main thing is that people should only be friends and they should be hanging out in groups that are large enough to avoid uh, dating conditions to happen. Um, but I think the friends only rule does nothing to unblur the lines of sexual tension in relationships. For one thing, Harris doesn't acknowledge that sexual tension can be felt between the same sex. It also, I can guarantee you, was felt between teens, no matter how large the group was. I, yeah, and I also think it's like having people in a group doesn't mean sex isn't going to happen. Oh, well, Um, I was also going to say, like, true your point is taken samuel and i was more thinking of like teenagers who like teenagers gonna be flirting whether there's like 15 people there and no one there but jesus right and (laughs) yeah it's uh i'm reminded of this garrison keeler quote where he's like they tried to put us in groups of five hoping the odd number would confuse us in reference (laughs) to uh churches uh (laughs) trying to keep them pure Poor fifth person. Yeah. That's like making me think of like how, I don't know if this happened to you in your Christian high school, but I feel like with couples, there was like this thing where you were like, oh, well, like, let's invite one other person to like 
you know, make sure nothing happens because if it's just couples, then they'll all couple off and like go wherever. And like we did that anyway. I mean, that's Harris's advice. Um, oh, is and it? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's this whole thing. I mean, he, Good to know it I worked mean, so well for me. <laughs> it, <laughs> he and so he's he's preoccupied primarily with premarital sex and physical boundaries, kind of like what we talked about, where it's only a problem. I feel like he often puts the onus of temptation on women alone. I think this is one of the reasons the book was so popular, because I think it provided, again, a simple solution to a much more complex issue, which is having a dating situation, whether it's sexual or not, that makes people mutually feel comfortable. And he, in saying just don't do it at all, that's so much easier. It's easier, but it's... I don't know that it's like more effective. You're you're saying not educating yourself makes you. You're you're saying that that would be less effective to be well, not sure, educated. or not having <laughs> like moral boundaries that you like actually believe in, but just have been right. told to you by a man child who wrote a book once. Like, I mean, yeah. Dude, man, if you see early interviews with him, maybe that was sure. mean. Maybe that was mean. But he, I mean, no, he was. Mary, I just keep going back to Mary, he was a baby. Mary, if you see interviews with him, he looks like evil Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Like he, <laughs> like I don't want to be mean. I'm, well, I'm being I mean just, now, but like he's just like he can't stop smiling, which I get. He's anxious, but like it's just so creepy. Yeah. Like Christians listening to this, you guys come off creepy a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Samuel. Yeah, Thanks. yeah, that's my no, message. I just, don't I just be creepy, like, Christians. Don't be fair enough. I just keep coming back to the fact that he was a baby. Which adult let him write this? I, I think the, I think the people at Multnomah Publishing probably would be the answer to that. Like I don't know. That's a rant. I just, I keep saying, like, who let a manchild write a book about dating and purity and marriage? Well, clearly somebody did, because this brings us to point five. Uh, Harris very much believes that all authority is an extension of God's authority. And I think this is really, essentially, he was given authority in writing this book. And I think this is why it took him so long to really turn the mirror towards himself. Um, I think this is another reason why this book is so popular, because it gave... it it gave parents and pastors a lot of leverage in matters that uh, I, I think the nineties is really when we saw the helicopter parent kind of um, morph into the imago that it became. Um, it refers to he Harris refers to authority in the book as God given and implies it shouldn't be questioned. For instance, does this person respect the authority of a boss or pastor, even if they disagree with that authority figure? Hmm. Uh, Harris puts how a person relates to authorities above how they relate to their own parents as a factor for if their marriage material. For instance, say that, say that again. Harris puts a person's so like he says how you treat a cop or or the mayor is more important than how you treat your mom and dad. So here's his quote on this. A guy who can't follow legitimate orders will have difficulty landing a job. A girl who can't respect a teacher or coach's authority will have difficulty honoring her husband. Please wow. understand, those, that's Harris's word choice, not mine. <laughs> I have so, okay, so many feelings. All the feelings. 
neither of those quotes continue. Neither of those quotes are good, but just nope. all the feelings. They're they're bad quotes from a Christian book that is in, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Note. Note that the authority relationships and examples are heavily gendered. Complementarianism is never name-checked, but it's heavily implied. The guy is at a workplace. The girl is being taught or coached. Which, like, we should say, I think, maybe define complementarianism. Did you do that earlier? Basically the idea that, like, people who are complementarian are on that spectrum, like, think that women cannot teach men meaning like they can't be pastors they can't be leaders of like you know like on the i guess most progressive spectrum like they can't be the lead pastor but maybe they could be like the worship leader on like the most conservative spectrum like they can't even teach boys sunday school the other side of that which i think it's pretty obvious samuel and i fall into is more on the egalitarian side which views that people do people stuff within their giftings and it does not matter what gender they are just thought i should throw that in because i feel like that's i didn't know what that term meant until like just a few years ago and i had i had either excised it from my brain or never heard it either until you and i were talking about this podcast and you were like talking about these complimentary right because i was shocked i was like this is still a thing and like a majority of denominations in the church like fall into the complimentarian viewpoint theologically even if they don't practically i should say i was very aware the church was sexist i just didn't realize they had such a fancy fun term for it well and you could be you can be even uh egalitarian and still be sexist that's definitely a thing but yes oh, for sure. there is an official theological term that i mean like you see it i mean i think it ties into that view of like this hierarchical view of like who has authority from who like it's you know i mean it's like the org charts you see in corporations like this person reports to this person reports to this person they do it except it's just like within the family um neither works great no i think you've you've provided a great explanation of complementarianism because this brings us sort of into our next point which is I really feel like Harris is making the case that marriage is ownership. and you... Yeah, that was the one that I, like, physically shriveled up into my body. Yeah, you, you don't believe that if you believe in egalitarianism, I would say. Because you unless shouldn't you... believe it if you believe in Jesus. Right. I mean, that that's a hot, spicy topic, because I could see somebody using the bridegroom imagery in Song of Solomon as a way to justificate, justify... Uh, patriarchal ownership of a woman which uh, i think this book does <laughs> i mean i know it exists i'm just saying that's yeah. my view Whew. it doesn't help that this religion was um oh that's so spicy i'm not gonna say that i was gonna be like it doesn't help that this religion was started by a culture who did see married women as like <laughs> possessions <laughs> no i mean no i actually think you should say that you should 100 percent read the bible as being written within a time frame where women were literally like less worse less worth than slaves women were only useful as much as they could like pump out babies if you read the bible through that lens specifically the new testament like things that in our you know 21st century were like it actually is like extremely radical and i think that's where i have come not to say that like the bible does not have any like passages that are problematic 
definitely think it does and like you can debate like that's a whole thing but I think overall like people who like like I think often a critique is they're like well Paul was a sexist you can say yes or no he wasn't but like the radical thing is that even if he was a sexist he still said in Jesus's eyes men and women there's no difference and I think we should also be reading these books within the culture that exists today which still is very patriarchal and sexist that's why we have to evaluate what we're reading because humans are not infallible i think this goes without saying uh mary and i do not ascribe to inerrancy doctrine which is this belief that the bible is perfect as it is and needs no critical lens applied to it that's a common that's a very popular belief amongst Christians that because this idea that scripture is God breathed, then therefore there's no problems with it whatsoever. I think there is an inherent problem when there, when a text is as old as it is. If you look at some of the most classic books in American literature, there are problems with it. Does those make, do those make those texts bad or completely unreadable? No, I think you have to put your thinking cap on and do a little bit of time travel and say, this is not this is how things were then but that does not need to be how they are now but it's we have this basically people speaking beyond the grave i mean yeah i mean not even just beyond the grave but like thousands of years beyond the grave right i mean we talked about earlier that we're like ooh, we don't want anyone to read what we wrote at like 19 or 20 hey i'm sure in 2000 years people will find stuff wrong with like what i write like you said you can't escape literature and Harris, I think Harris experienced this as well. Um, he wrote a book. He, he can't unring that bell. So I, I want to share just a few comments he made before we move on to the final point, because just to show that he does actually make this point, because it's a spicy point. Um, one of Harris's points in chapter four is, and I quote, I cannot own someone outside of marriage, which implies that within marriage, you can. Um, he's got this little relationship principle that he keeps citing in chapter two, which is the joy of intimacy is the reward of commitment. Uh, his defense of this, um, is circular. Um, he basically says, and I, I, looking back on this, uh, I do think, I understand what he was trying to say, which is you, the closer you are to somebody, the more you're going to enjoy the intimacy that you have, but that's not what he wrote. What he wrote basically implies that sexual pleasure is a reward for marriage. And I think it's like not every marriage, I I think, and this is like a, maybe a societal issue too, where it's like, you know, everybody's speed is going to be different for sex in marriage, but there are going to be some people who they struggle to open up sexually, but you still love them. So here's what he said. uh, Until you're married, don't treat each other as if your bodies belong to each other. I think this poor wording really comes down to Josh not considering that spousal rape is an issue, is like a thing and an issue. And that passage in the Bible where they said like your bodies are like each other and so like treat this as your own body. It was specifically written against spousal rape, against men exerting power over their wives who had literally zero like negative power in any shape or form in their relationship so it's like the inverse even the way you said that it's evoking the golden rule not a business transaction 
Right. It's like do unto you know do unto your spouse as you would do to yourself. What, what if he said that? I don't know if we'd be sitting here <laughs> talking a bit of, talking about this book. <laughs> we we still would because there would be all the other chapters. But <laughs> and I, I so I'm going to move us on to our final point. This one I think is really funny in light of what he's talked about with productivity and enjoying God's gift of singleness. And that is that we should all be policing our peers' as purity. So you know that time in your life that's supposed to be not thinking about dating or sex? You have to use that time to make sure your friends are also not dating or having sex. This kind of cancels out singleness being a gift for God. And he makes some gendered assumptions about libido. Mary, what do you think those assumptions are? Um, my guess is that women not only have no sex drive, but they're actually afraid of sex and have to be enticed to open it up, as they say. And that men are like roaring machines full of gasoline, ready to go, and like cannot control their brains in any way, shape, or form. That it's just like always out there. Well, we have some handy dandy excerpts to answer these questions explicitly. Oh no. (laughs) Guys, it's time we stood up to defend the honor and righteousness of our sisters. We need to stop acting like hunters, trying to catch girls, and begin seeing ourselves as warriors, standing guard over them. How do we do this? First, we must realize that girls don't struggle with the same temptations we struggle with. We wrestle more with our sex drives, while girls struggle more with their emotions. We can help guard their hearts by being sincere and honest in our communication. We need to swear off flirtatiousness and refuse to play games and leave them on. We have to go out of our way to make sure nothing we say or do stirs up inappropriate feelings or expectations. Can I just say as a Libra, this is so hard for me to do. Like everything I say (laughs) sounds flirty. (laughs) So this is Harris, what Harris believes the girl's responsibility is in policing her peers' purity. I think many girls are innocently unaware of the difficulty a guy has in remaining pure when looking at a girl who is dressed immodestly. Now, I don't want to dictate your wardrobe, but honestly speaking, I would be blessed if girls considered more than fashion when shopping for clothes. Yes, guys are responsible for maintaining self-control, but you can help by refusing to wear clothing designed to attract attention to your body. I know many girls who would look great in shorter skirts or tighter blouses they know it but they choose to dress modestly they take the responsibility of guarding their brother's eye to these women and others like them i'm grateful you were a great girl samuel fabulous oh oh no i was josh harris full stop okay (laughs) that's just how that is how he sounds as someone who was a teenage girl we did not know it we don't know it and you know this is another way that women and men aren't all that different like, I always just felt like I was the ugliest person in the room. I mean, you're, like, very tall. Did you shoot up in high school? I feel like that's where that could have come from. I'm outing you as a tall person. I, I did. Uh, to be clear, by shoot up, she means have a growth spurt. I did not. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was six foot one in seventh grade. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Samuel, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel like as an adult, I'm coming out of my shell. Like, it's weird, because I always had this sort of, like, confidence. 
I kind of had to be confident because people knew I was there. I was perceived at all times and it just felt it felt preferable to like I don't know, especially in like a Christian high school in Ohio, just having some become some adult special project. Like you don't talk much, do you? It's like, no, I'm going to talk so much. You're actually going to tell me to stop talking. <laughs> that was my, <laughs> I mean, that was my I, coping mechanism. As someone who is like a very short person who has been told I have Napoleon complex. Like I feel that because I think on the alternate side, I was short. I looked super young. I looked very sweet. I, I just always had this like fear people would like, maybe just run over me and so I've always been this like firecracker that like exploded my personality into the scene maybe this is why we're friends yeah I think we like kind of both handled our heights in a similar way (laughs) and people would be like oh there's Mary and Samuel the shortest person on campus and the tallest person on campus walking next to each other wait no good transition that kind of closes out the points of the book I did want to share a few extra things that are in the book that I couldn't quite categorize so this second edition features an anecdote near the beginning um because josh harris got famous and had really living up to that woody woody harrelson i'm an idiot um living up to that (laughs) living up to that andy warhol quote in the future everyone will be i know oh my god you have to leave that in i I think i will (laughs) i'm trying to picture woody harrelson playing andy warhol he's like Josh Harris. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would be amazing too. I mean, I'm just imagining the art that would be made. I'm sorry. I totally interrupted you, but that was hilarious. No, that's really good. <laughs> I love this. I love bringing Woody Harrelson into this podcast. Every episode. I th- that should be a thing. We'll just work him in somehow. Um, <laughs> this really reminds me of Venom Let There Be Carnage. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> It reminds, it reminds me of that that Andy Warhol. I was going to say Woody Harrelson again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just was like such a, what is that called? Freudian slip that I'm just, I can't stop thinking about it. It's such a slip. It's such a slip. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Harris got his 15 minutes of fame. No easier way to say it. Um, and... That that fifteen minutes of fame extended to an appearance on Real Time. No, it's not called. It wasn't called Real Time at that point. It was politically incorrect with Bill Maher, and the other guest Ooh. was Ben Affleck. So this is like, oh, well, it was Ben Affleck and Christine O'Donnell. So wait, he, wow, so many, so many people. Very okay. That just threw oh, my brain to what that save, conversation was. Oh, well, save your thoughts because I'm about to I'm about to lay it on you because this is we're getting a little bit out of bad Christian books territory and more um, behind beyond the blinds territory. <laughs> okay, I, I'll go. Let's go. Um, so I really wanted to find a clip of this interview because I really wanted to play like a bit of it on this podcast, but Mary, I couldn't find a clip of it, and I have a theory as to why. I was able to find a transcript of the interview via Jezebel, of all things. The the interview was on YouTube, but Bill Maher, in an interview with Howard Stern, made reference to a lot of his old clips being scrubbed. Because, you know, it's that classic thing of like, oh, people get so offended. You know, it's like, well, anyways. So the reason that I think it was scrubbed from YouTube is because Ben Affleck gets bored listening to Josh Harris talk about purity culture. So he starts sexually harassing Christine O'Donnell. Where he's oh, like, no. 
I, he probably thought it was flirting, but it's like for the clips I was reading, I was like, oh yeah, it, it's definitely not professional what he's saying to her. Just basically like, would you have sex before marriage? Are you having like, are you thinking about sex right now, Christine? You know, just like, Ugh. yeah. Mm. So that makes me sad about J Lo's choice. Hopefully, he's grown. Allegedly, he might not have. Well, but um, my tinfoil hat moment though is if you Google. Or YouTube, politically incorrect, Ben Affleck, Josh Harris. There is another interview that comes up, and he does interview a man named Harris. But in the interview, the man's being Islamophobic, and Ben Affleck is defending Islam. And he looks so much better in that interview. It's almost like, but it's still recorded as Ben Affleck, Harris, politically incorrect controversy in the SEO. How often is was Ben Affleck on the show? A quite a few times. He was on the show a few times. But it was yeah. weird to me because it almost feels perfectly meant to like cover up his like faux pas with Christine O'Donnell. Um, but that's a total side note, and that's all alleged on my end because all I could find was a transcript via Jezebel. But kind of spicy, right? I mean, yeah. Also the fact that like you found it with a magazine called Jezebel, which is, you know very spicy i mean have you have you read jezebel of course i have I'm like, okay i was yeah. like no, no no i have i'm just saying because you know like jezebel and christianity is she's a she's a christian icon a christian icon that's a great way to put it samuel used as a weapon against women <laughs> <laughs> super iconic eaten by dogs i forgot that she got eaten by dogs how did that's like the thing people know about her there's just a lot going on in the book of kings is it kings or samuel oh samuel okay sorry that was <laughs> that was not intended to be a <laughs> no it's got to be kings right because like second samuel covers the reign of david and i feel like kings is kind of like a post-david world like second samuel there's solomon and a little bit of <sighs> wow we're like showing our um i promise you guys i did bible quizzing as a kid so um, did i I did first and second Samuels. That was actually so did, one of my favorite years. So did I. That was also one of my favorite years. Did we make did you make it to the regional quiz that year? Uh excuse me. I made it to General Assembly. Thank you very much. Mary, you and I were in the same room in like the twenty somethings and the twenty. I would have been like twelve. As would I. Oh, <gasps> we could have been friends. We could have been friends. But, you know, probably our, our personalities need to, to mature another 10 years. I would have been just telling you about how much I loved Revenge of the Sith. So it's probably best that uh, you, didn't, you didn't run into each other then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might have been with you. Anyway, not this podcast isn't about Star Wars. It's not. Um. <laughs> although I can make anything about Star Wars. Fortunately, we, I, I will move us to a conclusion because we are fortunately kind of wrapping up here. So yeah, I mean, it just really feels like Harris is trying to buy time for a word slash page count, which is especially funny given that we're accidentally padding this podcast too. <laughs> the final part of the book is just like Harris talking about how his own parents met. And then he's just like, I'm going to have a story of my own one day. And boy, did he ever. Um, his epilogue is the beginning of Boy Meets Girl, which is his courtship book. And it's about him courting his wife. It's like a dramatization of his wife before she became Mrs. Josh Harris. I wanted to, I'll give a few final notes on where are they now? 
um josh harris now hosts a podcast called clear and loud which focuses on business trends specifically clarity in message which i thought was really funny um i listened to an episode because i mainly because his daughter was a guest on it so i wanted to sort of see it was really cute honestly like they seem to have a good relationship his daughter is on hinge so you know or she was she was on the apps i think harris kind of put himself into i I i think it was really good of him to remove himself from the conversation of christianity it's like business is business let him do whatever he wants to there and he's he's kept his statement about his books on his site which i think is good and it does seem like he's removed i kiss dating goodbye from new printing of books but here's the thing there's already a million plus of it out there including the one i got from the library um in the meanwhile I also I pre-ordered his um, Shannon Harris, his I believe ex-wife. I know they've separated. I don't always know how that works though. If it's there's like a middle stage, she um, is writing a book called "The Woman They Wanted: Shattering the Illusion of the Good Christian Wife," and uh, I have hope that maybe it'll be a good Christian book. Um, she's on record saying that uh, "I Kissed Dating Goodbye" isn't a good book in the documentary i see i i survived i kissed dating goodbye she's like oh you know it was a good book and then she pauses and she's like well i wouldn't say it was a good book but you you cared a lot (laughs) i don't know i'm rooting for her well and we'll revisit it if it's just as harmful (laughs) i think a lot of people point to this book as either the book that started off or really like epitomized purity culture within the christian church and i'm curious like your thoughts around was this the catalyst for was it a catalyst or was it just like a result of the time that it was written in this was 100 percent a result of the time but like a lot of things i think it became the kleenex of purity culture at, at some point people decide they should make disposable tissues but kleenex is the one that becomes known for it it's a very similar sort of thing in fact harris is definitely not the first person to write even a book saying don't kiss um, or at least write a publication he quotes um, a woman named bethany patchen's article called don't kiss me the new york times actually interviewed patchen in 2011 guess how old bethany patchen was when she wrote don't kiss me for boundless a web magazine by focus on the family saying that people shouldn't kiss until they're married uh, oh i don't even know 14 she was 18. Okay, 18. That's at least, like, slightly better. Well, Patchen went on to marry Sam Turode, and together they wrote a book about contraception called Open Embrace in 2002. Uh, The Turodes took a natural family planning approach to contraception, believing sex outside of fertility cycles was okay, but other contraceptives were immoral. In 2006, they retracted their support of natural family planning, and in 2009, they got divorced, and Bethany took to using contraceptives. Um, They both... Um, ended up going they still attended church at the time of the publication but they were now in much more liberal churches bethany shared that in her interview that her going so traditional was actually a way of rebelling against her parents who were actually pretty moderate evangelicals i share this story because it's like josh's story in microcosm you see this sometimes when culture gets more progressive and this is why one reason why i think counterculture for counterculture's sake is not always a good north star because for, you know, Bethany Patchen and Josh Harris, um, going super fear-based, um, some call it conservative, <laughs> is um, 
it was a way of being rebellious against their folks. And now I think in Josh's case, what he was rebelling against specifically was it just really seems from the narrative of his book that his parents were really pushing marriage on him, being like, oh, have you found that special girl in your life? Kind of like what you were talking about, Mary, which is it's hard to be single in the church. People give you a really hard time about it, especially if you're a woman. But I think even for a guy like Josh getting to an age like 20, there starts to be this expectation. So he created a narrative in which what he was doing was the most righteous thing and couldn't be argued against. So I guess my closing thing would be, you know, Mike Cosper of Christianity Today in the podcast and the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast calls into question the role Christians allow Christian celebrities to play in their worldview. My question specifically is what factors lead to these celebrities getting platformed in the first place? Hmm. It was hard to find who exactly picked up his book for Multnomah Publishing. What exactly got him that extra mile because i think there's a world where josh harris even writes i kiss daddy goodbye maybe self-publishes it and it's whatever it's like oh my friend josh wrote a book but this this got really big really fast you know there's like a reason why when you write a book when you write an article like before the era of self-publishing before you wrote anything that like there are editors and there are co-workers and there are people who come around you and they're like hey maybe like don't phrase it that way or like have you ever thought of x y and z you know i i do think it's really easy for anyone if you're in a really bubble community to not have those voices that challenge your own way of thinking and in my mind that's where things get very dangerous become very toxic and then you can you combine that with a platform yeah I think that's really well said, and I think that's. I, I think we'll be digging into that even more as we look at all the myriad people who have been platformed in that way. Okay, Samuel, is I Kiss Dating Goodbye a bad Christian book? Without a doubt. Even from an entertainment factor, it is not. It was difficult to read. It was like very easy to read in the sense of like it's written at a very um, accessible reading level. But um, <laughs> High it is it is neither clever nor fun uh, beyond not being particularly educational. In fact, one could call it a bad education. So, uh, no, yeah, it's a bad it's a bad book. It's a bad Christian book. Free content for us. You know, it's worth going back fifteen years to laugh at someone who thought sitting next to a boy in the movie theater would like show up at my wedding which i can guarantee you it did it <laughs> i can guarantee it as well but part of that is um my riz was so strong i simply hadn't given my heart to anybody until i met my wife should we name some of the books or just like give out teases yeah we should we should we should share what's in store for this season i mean hopefully we're going to be dropping a bunch at once so you can look at our feed yeah so i the book i'll just be honest a horrible book that hopefully will be at least 2% fun will is Every Young Woman's Battle. That was the source of all of my teenage anxieties, and I've reread it. You're welcome. But also, like, Dave Ramsey, who I did not know, but there's, there's some dirt. And also some very 
quirky ways of expressing boomer ideas. We'll just put it that. What's what's oh. upcoming for you, Samuel? Those boomers are so quirked up, but they're not always goaded with the sauce. <laughs> um, coming up, um, I will be covering more stuff in the realm of toxic masculinity and uh, masculinity in general with uh, John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, which I'm currently reading. And I've got to say, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, John Eldridge is a better writer than Josh Harris. And when we cover Wild at Heart, you will see just what a diss that is. Should we say, like, if you want to tell us what books we should review, like, hit us up on our social handles, which I think will be, like, at Bad Christian Books. Yeah, yeah. Hit, us, hit us up with recommendations. We will take that very seriously. What book destroyed your childhood? Please tell us. We'll read it for you so you don't have to. So get psyched. We have a lot more coming. We hope you come visit us next time at the Christian Bookstore Dumpster because we've got a lot more diving to do.